everyone is with us this morning, and if you are visiting, and I think we do have some visitors, we're grateful for you being here. I hope you'll want to come back and be with us in the future. We are studying throughout this year the idea of being holy, and uh, the passage that Bill read, I'll, I'll make reference to it a couple of times in the lesson, but the idea of being holy, our main verse, our theme verse, as you can see above me, is from 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 16, where God says, you shall be holy, for I am holy. This first quarter we're emphasizing, and I'm going to talk and really get into talking about this morning, the relationship we have with God. So be holy in my relationship, and especially my relationship with God. Now obviously that translates to every other relationship we have, but especially that with God. This morning I want to begin to look, and it will be a two-part lesson. As a matter of fact, I was kind of chuckling at... Uh, Wes and me, although it's mostly my fault, uh, when I was looking at the sermons, and if you grabbed a bulletin, you noticed the sermons, and I, I just happened to notice that we really didn't plan it this way, but I think all but two sermons have the word holy in the title, so you're going to get a lot of sermons about holiness, uh, this, but the content is different, so don't, don't worry about that. But this morning I'm going to look, begin, and I will again next Sunday, to look at some historical attempts to be more holy. Now I'm going to talk more about that in just a second. But attempts to be more holy. Let's go back to a couple of things I began with, and let me do this quickly and get us right into the lesson. But I began by going back to the man in the mirror, and I drew up this old chart, that I, a picture I had found, and the idea of looking into the mirror and seeing the reflection that stares back at me and beginning to contemplate. And we've been doing that for the last couple of years. As we look at ourselves, we ask ourselves where we are in many respects, in different relationships, but especially before God. We might ask ourselves the question, how do I relate to God? Now, as we start talking about the relationship between God and man, how do I personally, I'm not talking about the church here, but I'm talking about me personally right now, how do I relate to God? Because God says, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So I ask myself the question, a very probing question, I hope it is to you as well, am I holy? I mean, what do I know about holiness, what I consider holiness to be? Do I really understand the idea of holiness? I know God is holy. He tells me that. And He tells me I am to be holy but am I holy? And if I am or I am not, what is my relationship with God? How do I even begin to really relate to God? Now, I'm not talking about saying a prayer. I'm not talking about necessarily singing a song. That definitely has to do with how you relate to God. But I'm talking about even, in some senses, on a deeper level and maybe an overreaching level, an overall sense. How do I relate to God? Because... And you've seen me put this picture up here before, and I probably will several times this quarter. Because most of us think of God as ancient man did. God was on the highest mountain, and God is up there, is the idea. Or maybe we now think in terms of space, and we think of God is out there. But the idea is, God is out there, and I'm down here. Or God is up there and I'm down here. I, there's a great distance between me and God as I look at myself. God is God. And I am this speck, this dust in all of creation. So how do I relate to God? In Isaiah chapter 6, I believe Isaiah is impressed with that. You may remember we read this. 
Uh, but I'll read the first couple of verses quickly. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, and he was, and I'll use this phrase several times, high and lifted up. And that's God. Maybe you say you have a translation that says he's high and exalted or something like that. But the point is, he's up there, I'm down here. His train even filled the temple. Above it, that is, I think, above the throne and so forth here, stood the seraphim. And uh, they had six wings, and with two they covered his face, and two they covered his feet, and two they did fly. But one cried unto another, like the lyrics of the song, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And I'm impressed with that as a godly person. And I'm not talking about the blasphemer right now. I'm not talking about the person who doesn't believe in God. I'm talking about the godly individual. The person who considers God, and God is holy. God is set apart. God is unique. God is distinct. God is great. And all of the accolades that I could give, and they would never be enough, the whole earth is full of the glory of God. God is God. And what else can you say? He is so unique, there really is no comparison. So, how do even the best of people, of human beings, really relate to God? When I ask this question at this point, I want to draw what is a base parallel. And I, and I believe the Bible draws it, and so I'll use it, but because I think it helps us begin to understand. There are little children here today. There are babies here. And we as adults, I think we could say we have a relationship with them, especially if you are intimately close, if you're in the family, you know, if the child is in your family, etc. But really to a degree, there are little kids running around here and they know us now, they know the sound of our voice, they relate to us. But you stop to think about and you say, how can that little child really relate to me? They don't know things. There's so many things they don't understand. There is so much of a distance between that child and myself because of my maturity, because of my level of intelligence, etc., etc. Then we begin to think about the child. How can I relate to the child? Their innocence that I've lost. Their sinlessness that I no longer have. And I begin to think about the distance that exists between us. And in a very real sense, as I think about God and myself, that is parallel. There is a great distance between us. So how do even the best reach God? Because, honestly, I am not holy. That's the way I would feel. That's what I, I think godly people are disposed to say. Even <coughs> the best of us. <coughs> One good cough, I'll probably be all right. Look at Isaiah in this passage, verse 5. I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I compared that in the previous sermon to Peter. Lord, just please go away from me. Depart from me. I'm a sinful man, is the idea. The best of people feel that distance. And the idea is, I'm ashamed. I'm not worthy to be in the presence of God. Because I'm not holy. I certainly am not high and lifted up as Isaiah saw God here, where God is. So I feel that great distance between God and me. I hope as we go through this year that what we will do is we will talk about that distance that exists. 
And I hope that we will also begin to bridge that gap within ourselves so that we understand that while there is a distance between God and us, I'm not God, and God is not man, the Bible says, yet I am to relate to God, and I am to mature and grow so that I become even like an Abraham, the friend of God. And I want us to really explore that as we go through this year. Because the journey up that mountain, as we've talked about, begins with the first step of baptism. Now, I'm not going to look at that deeply this morning, but I do want to call to your attention 1 Corinthians 6 and verses 9 through 11. You're baptized. You acknowledge your sin. You acknowledge the great distance between you and God. And you are washed. And I believe that, that speaks to baptism. You're washed in the waters of baptism. And so your sins are washed away, Acts 22, verse 16. But there's something else the passage says. Paul says you are washed, you are sanctified, you are holified. From the moment you're baptized, you become holy. You become a saint. You may not feel that. And as you're here this morning, you're sitting here this morning, you may think back to when you were baptized, and you may even have, as I would, Go away from the idea of being baptized. Go away from being baptized and look at yourself and think of how far you have to go. How great a distance there is between you and God. But yet God says, you're holy. You are sanctified. In fact, you are justified, which means in the sight of God, you are made right in the name of our Lord. Now, let's go back to the picture for a moment. And let's look at 1 Peter 1 and verse 16. Be holy, for I am holy. There is God. There is me. This exists, this, this distance exists between us. Even if I have been baptized, God has washed my sins away. God has declared, and so it is so, that I'm holy. I'm sanctified. I am a saint. A lot of us use the term saint as being so far beyond what we're able to achieve, we talk about, oh, so-and-so is a saint, or they think they are, but I'm not. No, you are a saint. From the moment you're baptized, God has sanctified you. You are, you are a saint. And so the idea is, I am a saint, but what I feel is I want to be more holy, and hence the idea of these two lessons, the attempts to be more holy. Now, I want you to understand where that's coming from. It's where I feel. I mean, it's what I feel of where I am. It's how I view myself. I know I'm a saint. I know that when God cleanses me of all my sins, I am sinless. I understand that. I know I am blameless in the sight of the Lord. I know I'm justified in the sight of the Lord. I know I'm holy in the sight of the Lord. I know that because God says it and I believe it. But when I talk about wanting to be more holy, I speak more to the idea of what Bill was reading. Come out from the world and be separate. Chapter 7 and verse 1, perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord. Now that's a process. That's the idea of a journey. That's the idea of going up the mountain, as it were, a process to reaching God. And someday we will. Not on this earth. I will never be God. And not even in eternity will I be a God, but I will be with God. I will dwell with God for all eternity. So it's a process. 
<coughs> well, it's a process. It's a journey. I am perfecting my personal holiness. Go back with me, if you will, to 1 Peter 1, and let's see this passage. We quote verse 16, but I want us to see exactly what the passage says. Look down at verse 13. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind. And this is like the idea of tightening a belt. Gird up the loins of your mind. So get your mind right. And hope to the end of the grace that is, is brought unto you uh, of the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, Peter says, not fashioning yourself. Now I want you to focus on that for a second. A process where I'm growing. I'm becoming more holy. Not fashioning yourselves to the former lust when you were ignorant, when you didn't know better. But as he which has called you, be holy. And as he who has called you is holy, you be holy in all manner of conversation, in all your ways of life. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you'll notice, if he goes on, as he goes on in verse 17, and if you call on the Father, and Christians do, we have answered the call, we have called on the Father. Notice as he says, pass the time of your sojourning in fear. Perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord. Passing the time of your sojourning, your journey in fear. So he's speaking of the idea of a process to being holy. In fact, verse 16, as I said, I will dig deeper into that verse. It really is future tense. And it's an ongoing future tense. You shall, in an ongoing sense, be holy. For I am holy. Not one day at some point in time. But as a process, you will be more and more holy. And that's why, let's go back to our verse for this quarter. Look at Isaiah chapter 2. And if you notice in Isaiah 2 and verse 2, and I'm just going to read verses 2 and 3 here of this passage. That's why Isaiah would say, it shall come to pass in the last days, we're in them. Now, Christianity, that the mountain of the Lord's house will be established in the top of the mountains and exalted above the hills. But notice... All nations shall flow unto it. Verse 3. Many people shall go and say, Come ye, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. That's the idea. Let's go up the mountain. Let's go to God. Let's be more holy and reach God. Let's not just stay down here where all human beings are with that great distance between us and God. Let's be more holy. Now, there have been historically, some great attempts at doing that. Godly people have recognized the need to be more holy, and they've made notable attempts. And there are a lot of them. I chose four, two of which I'm going to look at this morning and two next Sunday morning. And obviously I'll spend a little bit more time next Sunday morning on those two. They're more modern, etc. But I'll get into that. But notable attempts to be more holy. And so... We're going to look at these four attempts, and we're going to take notice of both their successes, because there were successes, and their shortcomings. It becomes apparent as I put the first one up here. The Pharisees, and when I say Pharisee, I realize the connotation of Pharisee is bad work. I mean, it's just, you know, Pharisees are not good. Somebody calls you a Pharisee today, that's not a compliment. I want you to go with me to Acts 26. In fact, I want you to consider with me several things Paul said 
in Acts, in the book of Acts, as he was standing before the Jews. In Acts 26, you may remember <clears throat> that this is Paul before King Agrippa. And Agrippa begins to question Paul, and Paul answers verse 1 for himself. Start reading with me in verse 2. I think myself happy, King Agrippa. Maybe blessed would be a better translation. Because I shall answer for myself this day before you, touching all things whereof I am accused of the Jews. Especially because I know you to be an expert in all customs and questions which are among the Jews. And wherefore I beseech you to hear me patiently. Now notice what he goes on to say in verse 4. My manner of life from my youth, which was at the first among my own nation of Jerusalem, everybody knew, knew all the Jews, which knew me, or who knew me from the beginning, if they would testify, that after the most straightest set, strictest we would say today, of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. There were good Pharisees. So where did the Pharisees come from? But there were long-standing social and religious conflicts, and they date all the way back, believe it or not, to the days of the Egyptian slavery. But they came to a head during the days of the Grecian occupation, and I'm not going to give, give a historical lesson this morning, but Alexander the Great conquered the Jews in the 4th century, early 4th century. And then his generals took over, and one of those generals and his descendants occupied Israel, is what we would say today. And while they were occupying Israel, again, these social and religious conflicts began to bubble and they eventually come to a head because God's people were being corrupted by the worldly influence of those Grecians. Uh, think in terms of the Olympics, and I'll just give you that one example. There were ancient Olympics, a lot of you know that. And these ancient Olympics came from the Greeks, a lot of you know that. What you may or may not know is they competed nude, for example. Now, if you're a godly Jew and you're occupied by a people, that's just one example out of many. You began to be corrupted, and they were. Phariseeism was a call for those people to return to holiness. Like Paul is saying here in Acts 26, everybody knows how I lived. I lived after the strictest sect of our people. The word Pharisee is derived from an Aramaic word meaning set apart, separated. Maybe that rings a bell. We put a definition for holiness up here, and the first thing we said in the definition is set apart, separated. So you realize that the idea among the Pharisees was Let's separate from the corruption of the worldly influence and let's go back to God and be what we're supposed to be. That was the idea. It was a reactionary movement that attempted to reject the worldliness of those in control or even the leadership because a lot of the priests became corrupted. And they were leading the people toward being less holy. And so Phariseeism was saying, let's go back to being more holy. Notably, the Pharisees emphasized the responsibility of the individual, notice, to sanctify, holify himself. Now, I look at that and I say, that's a good thing. That's exactly where our mindset needs to be. It translated, in a practical sense, into a concerted respect and emphasis of the law of Moses. That's a good thing. 
to respect God's law, to emphasize it in your life. With all of the temple rituals and services, what would we say today? It put at the core, go to church. Be a, you know, a viable member of church, we would say today. Go to temple. Do the things you're supposed to do because there was lack of respect for the temple. They were growing away from that. It wasn't that important, etc., etc. The Pharisees know it is. And we need to emphasize that over this humanistic philosophy of, first of all, the Egyptians, with all of their idolatry, and then certainly the Grecians, with theirs, and then finally the Romans, who, if anything, were idolatrous, but really just no religion at all. I mean, they were like a lot of people today. Now, I'm not religious. I don't believe in any God, really. I don't worship any God, etc., etc., and people were giving way to that. Paul says to the Jews, you know me. And anybody that ever knew me knew that I was a person. In fact, as he would say, if you turn back to, is it chapter 23? I have lived in all good conscience unto this day. I'm a Pharisee, Paul said. Now, lest you go away from this lesson saying, Michael told us to be Pharisees, okay? I want you to understand that with any movement like this, and in all four cases, this is going to be what I say, there are dangers. And those dangers are evident in the New Testament because I don't forget that in Matthew 23, Jesus said, Scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. I'm not forgetting that. There are dangers. God calls us to be separate. Bill read the passage in 2 Corinthians 6. Verse 17 says, Come out from among them, the world, the idolater, etc., and be ye separate. But God does not call us to be radical separatists. There's a difference. I'm not going to turn to Luke 18, but I know you remember the story of the, the, the parable Jesus told, typical of the one man who went out to pray and of the Pharisee who went out to pray. And the Pharisee basically looked around him and said, God, I thank you I'm not like everybody else is. I'm better. I'm not like that publican over there. Well, that publican was exactly what God wanted because he, that tax collector, was the guy that beat himself on the chest and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. It's being a separatist to the point that, like the Samaritan woman said to Jesus in John 4, I'm surprised you'd even talk to me because the Jews, and I think she meant the Pharisees, have no dealings with the Samaritans. But Jesus did. Jesus separated himself from the world. None of us would deny that. But Jesus was not a radical separatist that said, I am so much better. And he really was. I am so much better than everybody else. I want nothing to do with you. And you can get like that as a Pharisee. I am so holy. I see myself holier than other people. That's when God would say, wait a minute. On your best day, Michael White, you still have sin and you still need me. There's a danger in getting a separatist attitude. Separation can breed an elitist attitude. And that's what we see in the Pharisees. The most of them. Not a Paul. Not a Nicodemus. But most of them, we see that. And what might have begun with good suggestions, you're living in a world 
And all of this worldliness, all of this corruption is coming in and you begin to set guidelines for yourself. I hope you do that. I hope you have things that you have put in place. We'll make suggestions through this year of things you can do. But good suggestions for you to make a personal commitment to be more holy. For example, we have a... I think we still have a reading schedule, don't we? What? We have a reading schedule. You know, we have encouragement to read your Bible every day. Those are good personal commitments to be more holy. But what it led to was rules. Rules that were demanded. Rules and laws that God had never made. A whole long list of them. And those rules superseded even God's commandments. Remember Jesus teaching for commandments the doctrines of men. And when it gets to that point, we've not, we're not only going, we've gone too far. So we don't want to do that. We want to make suggestions to each other. We want to encourage each other to be more holy, like the Pharisees began to do when they started. But we certainly don't want to say, now, this is a good idea. No, this is a rule. And now, if you don't live by it, you are not holy. And I look down on you. That's what happened with the Pharisees. To an extent, that happens with the next group of people, the Amish. A little differently, though, and I want to talk about the Amish. Typically, if you go over here to Pennsylvania, Lancaster area, etc., you might see a picture like this of a family walking down the road. And that's what we think of. And we look at that and we see guy, older guys with beards and no mustaches. We see different colored clothing. We may not understand what all of that's about, and I'm certainly not going to get into all that this morning. We see various ages, etc., etc., but a family of Amish. And that's what we think about. But let's go a little further with the Amish for a moment. The Amish movement arose out of a division among Swiss Anabaptists. Again, not going to get in a deep historical lesson, but let's just say that the Anabaptists were people who began over a doctrine that is very true, very right. I'll talk about it in just a second. But there was a division among them. It was led by Jacob Amon, hence Amish, in 1693. Now, he believed that the Anabaptists were getting away from the teachings of their predecessors, notably those that had been articulated and formulated by Menno, hence Mennonites, Menno Simons in the early 1500s. So you can tell some time. Almost 200 years has passed here. Those who followed Amun became known as Amish. And today those of various degrees of conformity, as the Amish would look at them, or blending in with the world, are known as Mennonites. For sake of time, let's just say the ultra-conservative are the Amish, the more liberal, depending on how liberal you may, and you may get very liberal, are the Mennonites. And you can have a whole wide range of Mennonites. But I want to talk about the Amish for a moment. As we look at the Amish, with Simons, who was really the, the grandfather of the Amish, there was an emphasis on personal Bible study. It was radical at the time. Think early 1500s. You still have laws in some countries that say... You can go to jail for reading your Bible. But he emphasized personal Bible study. Good thing, bad thing. Good thing, obviously. He emphasized personal discipleship. Not me go to the priest and the priest tell me how to live my personal life in relating to God, but me go to God through the Bible 
and in personal worship and relate to God directly. Learn from God. Be a disciple of God on a personal basis. Not led by the king, not led by the priest, but led by God through his word. That was extremely radical, but it's right. He also emphasized, of course, adult baptism of the believer. Most people were baptized as infants. And through his study, he saw it was adults who believed. And so the re-baptism are in Greek, anabaptism. And that's where the term comes from. Now, all of that, but to say this, Simon's had experienced a, a spiritual crisis in his life. And I want you to listen to a quote and see if this describes in any way you at any point in time. And notice, as a Christian. Listen to this quote. You might be able to read it. If not, I'll read it to you. Simon said he, quote, prayed to God with sighs and tears that he, God, would create within me a clean heart and graciously forgive my unclean walk and unprofitable life. Now, I want you to notice something here. He was a priest in the Catholic Church when he prayed this. My unclean walk, my unprofitable life. For, he said, true evangelical faith, that is faith from the gospel, cannot lie dormant. It can't just be something that lies around inside me. But it manifests itself in all righteousness and works of love. It dies unto the flesh and blood. It destroys all forbidden lusts and desires. It cordially seeks serves and fears God and restructures its relationship with the worldly society. Now I ask you, is there anything you find wrong in that statement? To me, there's not. I think he hit it. I think he nailed it in what he prayed. And that if that was my prayer every day and my goal every day, I'm on my way to being more holy. Practically, Okay, how do we do that? How are we going to get rid of all these sins, relate to the world differently, all that kind of thing? Well, he began to practice it. And it translated into a philosophy that covered most aspects of simple day-to-day living. And there was a heavy emphasis on church and family relationship. Now, if you're thinking Amish, think, you know, here we are, 16... I mean, 1500s and we're 2100, you know, or 2000s rather, 21st century. Think in terms of where it's gone, but a heavy emphasis on church. But again, to heavily emphasize in my life church and family, would that be wrong? Or is that really the basis for personal holiness? I think as we look at that, we say, great idea. Really exactly where we need to be. But there are dangers. When I look at people like the Amish, or I look at the Pharisees, or other groups, especially next week as we look at these groups, and I'll bring this passage in, but I look at even Jesus singling out people who were not Jews even, and saying, you see that? They got that right. Learn from them. And that's where we need to be. I think we can look around and find great teachings and great examples, even in people who otherwise might have been wrong. But that, in men of Simon's, was right. But there are dangers.
Because what began with good suggestions for simple daily living, notice, simple daily living, has led to what's called the ordnung. And that's a German word that means a set of ordinances, commandments, rules, teachings, and they have to be obeyed. And so you see it. We went back to the picture. We'd see the plain dress. We'd see the prohibitions if we look deeper into the Amish teaching. The prohibitions are surely severe limitations of modern conveniences. The bicycles without pedals, for example. The horse and buggy, and on and on it goes. And we would find inconsistencies, but we would see severe limitations. The marriage within the Amish church. And marriage within the Amish church of a fellow Amish person to the point that, if not obeyed, if not heeded, not accepted. You don't marry who you should marry, then you're out. Always, totally, forever. You're done. The complete conformity to the rules, notice, of the local elders. It's not even a church creed. The ordnung is local. These men are... Really not, they don't aspire necessarily to be elders, but they are appointed and they come together and they make the rules. Will we have bicycles? Will we allow pedals? Can you run a telephone wire out to a booth in the front yard or no telephone altogether? They make all these rules. And you have to conform to the local elders at all costs. There's a heavy degree of separation, obviously, from the non-Amish If you're not Amish, you're English. And there's a total separation other than business dealings and things like that. But a heavy separation, and it's demanded. And we go further with that, and we realize what we're talking about is 1 Corinthians 5, verse 10, where Paul said, wait a minute, I'm talking about withdrawing fellowship. I'm talking about you being separate from the fornication, the idolatry, etc. in the world, but you can't go out of the world got to be in the world. Jesus was in the world. And He walked and lived among people in the world. And He reached people in the world. And He made His apostles fishers of men in the world. You can't go out of the world. And that's a great danger among godly people. Not just the Amish. Because those rules or laws have to be obeyed at the risk of being excommunicated. And if you know anything about the excommunication or the shunning of the Amish... You know that if you choose not to be Amish, if you choose not to obey all of these rules, etc., etc., and you are excommunicated, you are not only out of the Amish church, you are out of the community, you are out of the family, no one has anything to do with you. And I insist to people, that is much, much beyond the rules of withdrawal of fellowship. A complete, absolute shunning of the individual. And sometimes for something as simple as, I think a godly person ought to have a right to drive a car. And then it's not falling back on the Word of God. It's falling back on what maybe I think, or Wes thinks, or you think, or the other person thinks. And that group of people and the rules. So as we look at it, we're going to look back to the successes, the things that were right, and the good ideas that we can draw. And we're going to come next week into two modern movements, and we'll really look at those a little deeper. But we're going to be aware of the dangers. Are you here this morning and you're not a Christian? 
Your journey to holiness begins with taking that first step. We talked about it. To be washed by the blood of Jesus. To have your sins washed away. Do you believe in Jesus? Do you know that He is the Son of God? Will you confess that? Are you willing to change your life to make the journey? If you are, you can be baptized, you can be washed, you can be made holy. You can be right in the sight of God. If you're here today and you've been living your life, and you're like Menno Simons, and you realize at some point in your life, you're a Christian, you are holy, but you're not living like you should. You're not walking the journey like you should. You're not progressing as you should. And today you want to take a first great step to ask for the prayers of the people here and to make a deeper commitment. We beg you to come while we stand and sing.